0: This episode of the PolicyViz podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J-M-P, is an easy-to-use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag-and-drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with data viz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results.
1: Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode, I'm very pleased to be welcomed by my Urban Institute colleague and pal uh tracy gordon a senior fellow in the tax policy center here at urban tracy welcome to the show
2: hi thanks for having me
1: um otherwise known as trego yes perhaps the best nickname here in the building
2: it's a very good nickname it's a very good nickname. you should really go by Jay schwab have you thought
1: about that <laughs> i've tried it it doesn't quite roll off the tongue yeah the way trego does i need
2: to change my twitter handle and yeah do more just branding go, just go with trego yeah, yeah yeah change my legal name <laughs>
1: <laughs> do the whole thing this is no, gonna be a fun little conversation i mm-hmm. can tell um let's talk about research. Mm-hmm. Um, you do a lot of work with state and local finances, taxes, and we're going to talk about a cool new project that you have that's just come out um, in a little bit. But we've been talking over the last few weeks sort of here and there uh, about some of the things that we've seen that are even at wrong with the social science field, but maybe lacking. Mm-hmm. that's a uh, mm-hmm. good term, so how are you feeling these days about <laughs> about the work that we're doing and we being sort of the entire field of social science research
2: right, right. It's funny, when you frame the question that way, I think of the state of the union, and I mm-hmm, feel the yeah. need to say the state of social science is strong. Um, <laughs> you know, we've perhaps never lived in better times in terms of being able to discern relationships between things. There was a great graphic, actually, your audience is uh, expert in this, but in The Economist about the, the use of different types of uh, evidence. So, you know, what's hot at various points in time. Now it's, you know, regression discontinuities and RCTs right. and re- randomized clinical trials. For a while, it was instrumental variable. So there are these, you know, flavors and fashions. Um, but for the most part, I think we're getting better and better at uncovering causal relationships. But I think, you know, this podcast originated out of a conversation where you and I were leaving the building and yeah. standing on the steps and saying, <laughs> okay, so what? So, <laughs> so you've identified this causal relationship where you think you have based on using the latest tools and techniques, but maybe you have this sinking feeling that yeah. you haven't quite uncovered the truth. And, you know, what is it all for? And yeah. Um, so this is kind of a longstanding frustration of mine, and I don't know that I have answers. I think I have a lot of questions, but, um, you know, throughout my career, I've kind of tried to straddle this inseam between sort of research and policy. And, and I think, you know, having worked in government, having been around a lot of people who've worked in government, I can see how I'm not sure we're training people to, to be effective as social scientists mm-hmm. influencing policy. Uh, my degree is in public policy, although I did most of my coursework in economics, And when I think of economists in the policy process, you know, I remember a a meeting at the National Tax Association, which is more fun than it sounds because
1: it is more fun. Not just
2: economists, but lawyers and accountants too. (laughs) Um, But it's not (laughs) that
1: much fun. But
2: (laughs) but they had the um, the the major advisors to the presidential um, campaigns at the time. It was two thousand and eight. And they asked them, you know, sort of how they did their jobs and what was surprising to them. And what was surprising to me was how much personality really mattered because, Mm -hmm. you know, so much of what we're taught in graduate programs in economics is this kind of perfectionist criterion. So to basically do a proof, show that you're right, QED, I'm done, drop the mic, that's it. Um, And if you do that, and, you know, from my very brief experience in government, if you do that in a meeting, people are like, That's nice. nice. Um, But we've got this problem here that we need to solve. And and I know a lot of economists who have served in government will say, you know, my biggest value added was not getting something through, but shooting down dumb ideas. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if that's the way you think of your job, then no one's ever going to invite you to a meeting, right? You're (laughs) the guy who says no all the time. Nobody wants you around. And what we don't teach people is how to take an idea that may be flawed and make it better to shape it. And I think that In law schools, my sense is that people get that a little bit. There's a little bit more sort of thinking strategically or working in the real world. And I I fear that, um, so, you know, again, I come from a public policy school too. And public policy schools came about because um, people like Aaron Waldowski, who founded my program at Berkeley, were concerned about not enough analysts having the right toolkit. So Mm -hmm. it was very focused on just getting the tools, not a lot of normative theory, um, you know, and using the answer from cost-benefit analysis or whatever to speak truth to power. Um, and I think that's a great idea. But again, you know, sort of how do you make sure that you're getting information into the right hands and that it's used correctly? Um, one of my favorite economists, Charlie Schultz, um, who unfortunately passed away recently, has an article in the Journal of Economic Perspectives where he says at the end of it, forget about any theory of the second best. Um, you know, this idea that you could sort of fudge perfectionism a little bit if you're in this and you might actually achieve you know better outcomes in this world of the second best. He said, you know, in reality, it's much more taking the sixth best to the third best <laughs> idea and really listening, you know, asking a policymaker, like, what are you trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. And if they say, you know, because they might not even know, you know, might, they might just say, like, you know, I want X, I want X. And, and if you could say, like, well, I can get you X prime, yeah. but it's going to require giving up this and maybe getting that. And um, I just think it makes us much more effective and it would bring about better policies. So that's my soapbox.
1: Okay. So let's start with graduate school. Mm-hmm. So I've said for a long time that when I was in graduate school, probably similar for you, I wasn't really taught how to present. I wasn't taught Ooh. how to make graphs. I wasn't taught even how to write yeah, well. Right. I mean, write for a journal, right. which is not writing well. Right, 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 um, right. None of that communication was actually part right. of the education. It was like, yeah, it was like, here's the, do the proof, mm-hmm. write QED, mm-hmm. you know, and, and move mm-hmm. on to the next thing. So, and, and you sort of mentioned lawyers and some other fields, like People in healthcare and people in the legal profession, they have to do these externships or they have to do these residency mm-hmm. programs. I mean, is that what we need in social science where you need to take a semester and go like work for a nonprofit and you need to, <laughs> you know, like you need to have an internship and actually do the. T- I always feel like yeah. I wasn't taught how to be an economist right. in, in right. graduate school. Like right. I had to learn that when I went out to work. Right. Maybe that's how it is for most people, most fields. Right. But we're but, also trying to talk to policymakers yeah. about changing policy.
2: And if you go straight into academia from graduate school, you could live your whole life <laughs> without having that experience, <laughs> right. Uh, right. which, you know, has its place, right? Because social science, we like to think that it's a pure science and we can live this life of the mind yeah. and uncover actual truths, And um, so that's wonderful. But um, but uh, yeah, I guess it, what concerns me is I think there's almost this law of inverse appeal that you're not a serious economist if you think about presentation, you know, that it's yeah. the really serious guys that is still using, like, transparencies and a marker, <laughs> um, you know, and covering it up with a piece of paper. So there's the big reveal <laughs> when you've got the QED Yay. at the end. That's right. Um, but, um, and they
1: all melt together. And,
2: yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. And so I like the idea of an internship. And for that matter, I have wanted to have an internship here for policymakers to mm-hmm. come learn what we do. Yeah. So, yeah, we should all talk more and, you know, sort of learn to respect, you know, each other's right. professions.
1: I mean, I think there's obviously a place for the people who are doing the theory, right? Mm-hmm. And doing the, let's expand the theoretical concepts or the econometric techniques because we're going to need to use them. But I'm a little frustrated, which I think you are as well. Is like. Anyone can run a regression now. Mm-hmm, you click mm-hmm, a button, mm-hmm. we run a regression, and we tend, I think, the field sort of glosses over a lot of these mathematical problems like omitted variable bias or all these biases mm-hmm. where we're just sort of like, eh, we sort of wave our hands and are like, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas maybe it's just the fundamental variance or the cor- or a simple correlation that's the most important thing.
2: So I remember um, one of these fads for a while was, you know, non-parametric estimation, um, which someone said to me was sort of let the data speak. And so I still like that. Like if you can't see a basic relationship between two variables in the means, then there probably isn't anything there. (laughs) And I've tried and tried to make something happen when there's not that fundamental relationship. But then that concerns me. So, yeah, I think that you can learn a lot from, you know, a table or a scatter plot or a good visualization, obviously. But it concerns me that we would also then be sort of, more lackadaisical about the rules of evidence, yeah. um, and you know, I was at a conference once where someone said that, um, she said, I, I was trained like everybody else here, and we all know that um, randomized clinical trials are the gold standard, but then we know what happened to the gold standard, didn't we? And I just <laughs> thought, that's a strange analogy. Um, and she, um, hopefully she's not listening to your podcast, but she was promoting um, what she referred to as video evaluations, program evaluations uh-huh. done by video. Um, which I ran by a friend of mine and he said, oh, you mean a commercial? And so, you know, <laughs> so um, you know, and I think you and I were both at a talk where someone referred to research evidence with research as a modifier, yeah. you know, because there are other types of evidence. Right. So, yes, like we, we never want to rely exclusively on research. Nevertheless, like the whole point is to follow the scientific methods. So yeah. You're not trusting your gut. Um, and yeah. being in policy, by the way, is a good way of testing that. You know. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember there was one conversation I was in about a program where some of us were pushing for better evaluation. And this guy who was very enthusiastic about the program and very smart and very well read about all these methods said, you know, his idea of evaluation was data collection. So he said, mm-hmm. you know, we're doing evaluation, we're collecting metrics, and not only are we collecting metrics, we're using those metrics to feed back into the program and do continuous quality improvement, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, my head hit the table because that's not an evaluation. <laughs> <Well, laughs> You've just ruined your evaluation, basically. You know, that was that was good for me to have to right. say, you know, if you care about this policy, um, then you need to be able to say why it works, why we need to bring it to a million other places instead yeah. of just this one place where you know, they were experiencing these very dramatic um, improvements in graduation rates. Right. For
1: example. So is it about researchers being able to communicate? Is it about researchers recognizing that not everyone understands what uh, heteroskedasticity mm-hmm. is? Is it um, it's about researchers in some ways getting back to first principles? Mm-hmm. Where if you were queen of the researchers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which would be an awesome title.
2: Which
1: I actually am. Which you actually... <laughs> But you are. Okay. So if you're a queen of the researchers, what... Okay, so let, let's put aside the graduate school stuff. Yeah. Say there are no one new is coming out. So you're just dealing with, let's say, Urban Institute or places like us. What would your first couple of policies be to say, here's how we're going to tr- or, or try to improve the way our research actually makes a difference or affects mm-hmm. policy or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it on the communication side or is it...
2: I think it's it's even, you know, formulating the questions because yeah. I think a lot of what we refer to as um, policy-oriented research is kind of, here's this neat question that I have in mind that I can look into because there happens to be this county-level variation. Uh, yeah. And, you know, someone designing a revenue system, uh, you know, at the local level should just naturally pick up my paper and be interested in it because the question, you know, is... Plausibly related to what they do. I, mean, yeah. I hate that. I feel like that's offensive. You know, yeah. That person who's trying to figure out how to raise revenue in probably the most efficient and equitable manner, just in terms of you know keeping her job, or mm-hmm. um, um, you know they, they don't have time to you know decipher I, I remember during the financial crisis, um, the podcast Planet Money had a contest where they asked people to translate the abstracts from economic journal articles, yeah. and one of them for something about um, economies of scope in the banking industry, which was so pertinent. You know yeah. when you're talking about um, you know breaking up banks and too big to fail and all that kind of stuff um, you know is there some benefit to to size and the ability to offer different kinds of products and but this abstract was impenetrable and so one of the winning um, translations was something like, we think banks are cool, <laughs> but we were too shy to talk to any actual, actual banks. So we found this data, and we did some regressions, and here's what we found. So, I mean, that's, I guess, talking to people, yeah. right? I think um, you can overdo the, the video interviews, and you can overdo the case studies, but you know, really talking to people that are affected by policies who oftentimes know... You know, even like the identification issues that we spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, mm-hmm. they intuitively know that um, based on the complexity of these programs. So, um, but how do you institutionalize it? So we've talked about sort of an internship program, maybe even like more collaborative projects, mm-hmm. having people actually write research papers together.
1: Yeah. Um, no, but but yeah. it's interesting, right? Because we use big data, or not even big data, just mm-hmm. or large data sets or small data sets, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there are people behind those, yeah. and yet we never actually talk to anyone right, I, right you know right, like right. download the cps and go right, blah right, blah, right, blah right, and right, oh you know, right. yeah there's you know we have 50,000 observations and yet how many economists actually go out and love you know talk to a person right um right. and that's where like the data journalism field is kind of interesting right. because they're talking right. to people but you know then the identification strategies are not right it's not what a journalist knows how to do so it's right. like you know everyone has their little specialty i guess right and yet the paths don't really cross, and really that's maybe that's what we need more of.
2: And isn't it, I mean, again, it's so exciting, right, that people in policy are at least reading from the same prayer book when it comes to evidence and mm-hmm. data, and that folks in journalism are producing these amazing, you know, examinations where they really get their hands dirty, and they dig into data, and they produce these visualizations, but then I was at a talk where someone pointed out the footnote to one of these visualizations, that said, that this was created with sort of a dash of kernel estimation and then a little bit of this, a little bit. It basically, it wasn't clear what this map. It was a oh, lot they of imputation. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, so sort of like you were saying, it's become very cheap to run a regression. It's yeah. become very cheap to do a lot of what's now called data science, I guess. Yeah. Um, but how much of it is really following the scientific method and making sure that just very basic stuff, like are you measuring what you think you're measuring? Um, I remember taking a class in um, qualitative methods um, that was taught by someone who did not believe in qualitative methods, and so she said, "It's all just small n, right? Basically, right. it's like you're doing um, right. statistics, but a very small sample. So you really got to worry about generalizability yeah. and um, you know, and, and sample selection." And I thought that was a great point, actually. Yeah. Oh, I know too. There was a book called um, "Diverse Tools, Shared Standards," um, which sort of emphasized that you know we're all trying to ask the same questions. Um, I think it was edited by um, Henry Brady and David Collier at Berkeley, um, and it was about sort of interdisciplinary research, but I think it goes for, you know, policy and journalism and other domains as well, that, you know, we're all trying to do the same thing, um, but we should – and we have different tools, and that's okay, but we should have the same standards about, mm-hmm. you know, asking, you know, are we really uncovering a relationship here? What else could be happening in the background?
1: Right. You also mentioned earlier about personality, mm-hmm. like at the NTAs, which mm-hmm. you know, tax economists mm-hmm. are fun, right?
2: So <laughs> <laughs> I spent my birthday.
1: <laughs> at wow, the NTA this year. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's um that's brave of you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It would have been fun for the whole group to sing happy birthday though.
2: Uh, there was cake, but there was. No oh, there was singing, cake, yeah. right, right, right.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, How important is it, do you think, for yeah. researchers to be able to actually like? talk to policymakers. Yeah. and jargon is a big problem. Yeah. Um, but we tend to, I think worry about jargon in written products Yeah, and not so much worried about, you know, we, we spend a lot of time and we being here at urban, but also other places, mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time editing papers and making sure blog posts and making sure that, you know, a general lay audience might be able to read it. But then I sort of feel like we just, if someone has a hearing, we just sort of push them out the door. Mm-hmm. Well, they're going you know, to meet with their group. and push them out the mm-hmm. door and say, good luck to you. Um, <laughs> so how important is that uh, piece of it?
2: Yeah, very important.
1: I mean, you um, do a lot of this.
2: Yeah, and, yeah. I, and we have colleagues who I think the world of, who yeah. are the world's experts on certain topics who I would never send (laughs) to those kinds of meetings Um, and so yeah so the question is you know, sometimes I just, you know, repeat their research. Um, I just, you know, figure that it's important that what's in those people's heads gets into the hands of people who can use it. And so, for example, at the state and local finance initiative, which I'm a part, we did a um, summer reading for budget analysts, um, compendium of urban research that was important to people that are putting together budgets. And it was, a lot of that was trying to sort of translate into dollars and cents, Mm -hmm. some of the research that goes on here. But you could imagine other kinds of compendia like that um, for different kinds of policy people. But yeah, I think when I've asked this question of sort of how do we train economists better and people talk about economists who've been successful in government, oftentimes it does come down to personality. Like Laura Tyson, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, um, someone that I worked with in graduate school, you know, she just had a knack for, you know, staying in the room and for offering useful insights to the process. Um, I think, uh, you know, translating, basically being able to go back and forth and, you know, and checking your ego a little bit, like mm-hmm. maybe you don't have to be the one to come up with the answer. Um, you know, I think part of our training too, is to, Try to always you know, do things yourself and you know, be kept competitive. But maybe, you know, you go to the person who's the world's expert because it's more expeditious and you figure out what the answer is and you find a way to explain the answer in a way that maybe is better than the person who actually came up with it yeah. to the person who needs it. Um, you know, to, to be willing to be more of a conduit sometimes mm-hmm. instead of the originator of the new fact, right? Um, but you know, if you're if you're a tenure track faculty member, then you know you've got to generate the new fact. There was a great actually apropos for um, your audience, I think. There was a great blog I remember seeing when I was in government that had a table for academic versus policy economics and so in academia it's important to be original in policy it's important to be right <laughs> in academia it's important to identify a direction of an effect in policy the magnitude, the magnitude actually matters, matters yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and some people you know just have a knack for one or the other you know it can be very stressful when someone comes to you and says I need to know how X policy is going to affect GDP and I need it in 10 minutes yeah. um, and you know so I, it, it's good that people self-select not everybody has to do everything yeah. Um, but yeah perhaps we could provide more training in an earlier right,
1: stage. Right. Um, this is maybe a little bit different question, but just occurred to me as you were talking. Um, from your perspective as a woman doing this sort of work, how do you view like the gender split and how we have these conversations? I mean, I know that's yeah, a yeah, big yeah, topic, yeah. and I don't want to get too far down the path, mm-hmm. but just I'm just curious about your perspective from doing this, like NTAs, for example, right? right? right like, right, right. and right. I always find it interesting when you go to some of these panels and it's like you know. Five older white men, right, talking about you know gun violence in the inner cities. right? right? right. Like I mean, so, <laughs> so. right,
2: um, and you've seen the David Hasselhoff thing, you know, where he you can put a little icon. Congratulations, you <laughs> have an all male panel, right? Um, yeah. So I think I really in graduate school did feel like it was a meritocracy, and mm-hmm. um, and yeah, oftentimes you know there were fewer than you know twenty percent of us in the room who are yeah. female, and that still happens sometimes but um in some cases i feel like it's helped me more than it's hurt that mm-hmm. i think um people remember you if you're the only one who's mm-hmm. like you um and having some of these more kind of female skills like listening and trying to bring people together and um you know it matters and um so yeah i wouldn't you know i wouldn't trade it <laughs> um but yeah i think i've also you know been in conversations where you know all that stuff of you know oh John just made a really good point. Well, I said that 10 minutes ago, actually. And so, you know, we can definitely all do a better job there. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's funny. I haven't thought of it before, but maybe some of what I'm talking about is just kind of everyone sort of being a more effective policy analyst if they did have these kind of more, you know, female type personality traits.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I I think obviously a lot of it, spans what we are and we're not teaching people both in how they communicate and how they relate to one another I think in the the room right and you know graduate students when they relate to one another and how they treat one another and you know that's just gender we haven't even talked about race we haven't talked about nationality and just the whole Sure. The whole
2: spectrum, right? And there is that thing. I think there was a study that confirmed this, um, that, you know, as in the entertainment industry, um, you know, in a lot of industries, people tend to hire people like themselves, you know, because like, that guy reminds me of me, you know, that he looks like the next Steven Spielberg. And yeah, yeah, that happens in academia all the time. So I think there was a blind study where they sent um, emails to professors saying, I would like to work with you. My name is, you know... Right, John it was sort of Jane like a, like a different African-American, yeah, right. right. And it was so disheartening, yeah. right? Because if yeah. it was like a white male, the guy would be like, yeah, sure, I have some time. Right. And 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 honestly, you know, I have seen that when I've asked um, people to write letters of recommendation for more junior people. And, um, you know, like there was one case where I really had to ask like several times mm. and it was like, come on, you know. and <laughs> yeah. um, But it's, I, I don't think it was, you know, it was just a blind spot that that person had. yeah, And so... Yeah, I think we have to be vigilant about right, that. Right,
1: right. Um, okay, so this probably hasn't been the most uplifting <laughs> conversations for 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 the field. Yeah. But you, um, I want to turn before we close up to talk about this new project you have that that's come out aptly titled. I think mm-hmm. what everyone should know about their state's budget. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no jargon there. No, nope. that tells you exactly <laughs> what what it's supposed to do. So, can you can you talk a little bit about um about the project and what and what went into it and what people are going to get out of it? Sure.
2: So um, one way I think about this project is I was in a dress shop in uh, DC and this woman uh, who's the owner, who's very smart, very entrepreneurial, very savvy said, you know, my state doesn't spend enough on education. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, what's enough? And so, and then at the same time, she was concerned that, you know, class sizes were too big and that teachers weren't getting paid enough. And so, you know, as economists, we always think about trade-offs. And so the goal of this tool is really to show how spending is determined and how, in some cases, there's just the hand that you're dealt in terms of the geographic conditions of your state or the demographics of your state, and then there's the policy choices that you make. So mm-hmm. to separate those two things and show just how any area of spending, whether it's social services, where we often think in terms of caseloads and how much we spend per person, or transportation, you could also think of caseloads as the number of drivers that you have on the highway – to show how those inputs interact to determine overall spending. And, you know, that if you want to have more of one thing, you're going to have less of the other. So if you want to pay teachers more, that's great, but you might have to have larger class sizes. And we do sort of do cost of living adjustments and show sort of explained versus unexplained portions due to labor market conditions. So I think the value of the tool is providing this uniform framework across all areas of spending and really trying to show people sort of where their tax dollars go and to what effect we have some outcome measures in there. And trying to demystify uh, state and local budget processes because I really think you know people would trust in their state and local governments. And if they're not going (laughs) to trust, if they're going to trust government, it's going to be at the local level. You know, as most research research has shown. But I do think that budgets can be opaque and. Um, it's important for people to understand uh, you know sort of what governments are up against and what they're trying to accomplish
1: yeah and what's really interesting I mean aside from there, there's lots of things that are interesting about it, but you actually do break down what sort of builds up to mm-hmm. to spending so you mm-hmm. can actually so it's sort of a fun little mathematical tool to sort mm-hmm. of show you and then and then show you shows you the data and then broken down by state so you can actually see what's going on in your state right
2: so every state every
1: mm-hmm. state for. For our social programs for medicaid higher ed public safety etc cetera, et cetera, so mm-hmm. very very cool so um, i'll put the link to the new tool on the show page and uh, folks can go check it out so very good wonderful Trago. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming on the show this has been a lot of fun
2: it was a pleasure thank you very much
1: uh, and thanks to everyone for tuning in to this week's episode so until next time this has been the policy of this podcast thanks so much for listening
0: This episode of the PolicyViz Podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J-M-P, is an easy-to-use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag-and-drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with data viz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results.